How do you create a fair society? Who deserves to rule? What rights do citizens have? How are those rights protected? What does it mean to act morally within society? These are the kinds of questions political philosophers furrow their brows and scratch their chins trying to answer. And every few generations, someone comes up with a new answer that is so memorable that they get kind of famous. Thomas Hobbes, for example, advocated a strong sovereign ruler. Jean-Jacques Rousseau focused on the necessity of a social contract. And Karl Marx explored how communism could solve the problems of liberal capitalism. In 1971, an American philosopher named John Rawls introduced a new answer, justice as fairness. Rawls had studied the history of philosophy, and he was influenced by thinkers like Immanuel Kant and David Hume. But his thinking was also shaped by his own experiences early in life. He had a lot of illnesses as a child. Actually, one of his biographers, Thomas Poger, reports on this. And two of his four, uh, four brothers died from illnesses that they actually contracted from John Rawls himself. Apparently, this just devastated him. Um, I, I think it was a lifelong uh, sort of despair that he felt. I'm Michelle Moody Adams. I teach philosophy at Columbia University. I'm also the holder of the Joseph L. Strauss Professorship in Political Philosophy and Legal Theory. Rawls was struck by how unfair his brother's death felt. It was random chance that made them die and not him. This idea stuck with Rawls, and he continued to think about fairness and equality for the rest of his life, eventually writing about it in his major work, A Theory of Justice. It was published in the first edition in 1971, and it became an almost instant classic. It essentially revived um, systematic political thought in the Western tradition, and it did so in a way that spoke to uh, citizens of contemporary, complex, multicultural democracies um, in ways that people needed to be spoken to, I think. Professor Moody Adams read the book first on her own, and then studied with Rawls himself when she was a graduate student at Harvard University. I have to say that having Rawls as a supervisor as busy and sought after as he was really just was an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary experience for any uh, graduate student. And it has shaped my intellectual life. Um, actually, for the, for the rest of my career, it's been an important influence. He understands that in ordinary life, people do and don't deserve things based upon some decisions they make. But he thinks if you're looking in the broadest sense of how people are born, what kind of family you're born into, what sort of work ethic they have, how they view the importance of education, what material resources they have. Rawls says you cannot assume that you deserve the best of those outcomes. Um, it's tempting when you're thinking, oh, you know, I worked hard and I'm here. I teach at University X and I wrote book Y and gee, I'm a hard worker. He says, of course, those things matter. And as a society, we want to celebrate them to a certain extent. But for shaping the fundamental institutions that govern distribution of benefits and burdens, we cannot assume that people who end up in place X deserve to be there more than people who ended up in place Y. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book 
to change the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor Michelle Moody Adams to discuss John Rawls's A Theory of Justice. John Rawls was born in Maryland in 1921. His father was an attorney, and his mother was a chapter president of the League of Women Voters. Rawls received his early education at the Kent School, an Episcopalian prep school in Connecticut. You know, growing up, he um, apparently was a very canny, you know, smart young young fellow. He went to Princeton uh, to do his, I believe it was Princeton, to do his undergraduate degree. He took off some time to fight in World War II, I think principally in the theater, the Asian theater uh, in Japan in particular. Apparently, he saw evidence of the atom bomb. I think it was Hiroshima. And this just made him um, deeply suspicious of every kind of militaristic project human beings might have. Um, He eventually did go back to Princeton and finish the degree. Uh, And then he did a PhD also at Princeton. Um, And his first teaching jobs um, were Cornell, where I think he was first an assistant professor and then an associate professor. Moved to MIT for a few years when that department of philosophy and linguistics first got going. But then he spent uh, the better, the best part, I think, of his career um, at Harvard, teaching there for uh, not quite 40 years, I think. Um, and he sent off into the world some of the most influential moral and political philosophers, I think, ever to uh, take up the subject. So he had quite an impact in the world. Uh, And an impact that actually, uh, writing-wise, had two different lives, really. The first one being the life that centered around the preparation for and the writing of A Theory of Justice, uh, published in 71, and then the writing of the political liberalism volume, which um, really changed the focus of the work. He was worrying more about um, disagreement and about um, pluralism in democratic societies and how we could come to consensus, including on a a conception of justice. What was swirling around culturally in the 50s, 60s uh, that, you know, may have encouraged him to think about the questions that he did? Right. So I I think there's three or four things I'd want to stress. One of them is in the intellectual domain, the intellectual realm, and actually with great cultural influence as well, Uh, The doctrine of utilitarianism in the roughest sense, you know, those actions are right, which promote the greatest happiness or the greatest number. That had kind of become the dominant political view as well. People didn't always explicitly articulate that they were utilitarians, but people had come to think, oh, it's just obvious that this is the right way to do things. And that had led to a suspicion that there was nothing more to be said in political thought. By this point in the mid-20th century, Utilitarianism had been a widely accepted theory for quite a while. Its origins can be traced back to the 18th and 19th century English philosophers Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. They believed that to act morally means to try to maximize the well-being of the most people. At the societal level, utilitarians believed that a just political community organizes its laws, norms, and institutions around providing happiness for the greatest number of people. This theory quickly became hugely popular. It seemed common sense. Why not try to ensure the well-being of the greatest number of people? It sounds good in theory, but Rawls saw some issues when putting it into practice. Rawls worried that utilitarianism did not take seriously 
the importance of individual liberty, individual rights, and the separateness and effect of persons that, you know, you can't just assume that if you're producing lots of happiness, that somehow it doesn't matter where it's going or who's experiencing it or who's producing it. For example, imagine you lived in a society where 10% of the population was enslaved. In this community, the labor of those 10% greatly improved the quality of life for the other 90% of the population. Through the eyes of utilitarianism, this would be a just society because it achieves happiness for the greatest number of people. But what about the happiness of that enslaved 10%? For Rawls, this was the problem of utilitarianism. It didn't account for individual liberty. Was there something going on kind of culturally, socially, maybe like those horrifically ugly highway projects, like right in the middle of cities where, you know, you could say, well, more people live in suburbs. They want to commute. Um, and so we're going to build this massive thing and destroy the downtown because more total people are living out there. Even if you just think about it as like a, a numbers thing, um, you're willing to really make life easier for some or, or even, you know, a, a, a slight majority while disregarding the needs of, of others. You're absolutely right. That is one instance. The challenge, of course, is that there were even great um, architects like Frank Lloyd Wright, who happens to be one of my actually favorite sort of <laughs> cultural heroes, who thought this was a good thing. You thought maybe uh, concentrating people in cities might not ultimately be good for them. So that you can see why there could be an argument for the overall well-being of people. But when you look at how decisions made in keeping with that vision uh, actually affected people who at the time lived in cities and didn't have um, options uh, economically to move out of them very quickly. Rawls believed that each of us has individual rights, that even the welfare of everyone else cannot override. So he wanted to reassert the importance of, you know, celebrating uh, liberty, not at the expense of other goods that matter. Um, so this leads, in fact, to the second um, important concern that's swirling around, and that's the question whether if you take liberty seriously, you can also be serious enough about addressing inequalities. The, the worry is that liberty and equality might somehow be too, too much in tension with each other for you to take both values seriously in political life. Liberty is the freedom of an individual to lead a life of one's choosing. Equality, on the other hand, sometimes requires restriction to ensure equal distribution. And Rawls spends a great deal of time. He didn't express this as clearly at the start of this project, but as he looks back in the late 70s and early 80s, he became willing to remind us that one of the things he did was show that liberty and inequality don't have to, to be permanently in tension. And part of his, pros, his project in A Theory of Justice and Beyond was to refine each of the concepts, both liberty and equality, um, to try to show if you could get a substantive understanding of each, and yet you could also have a society that promoted them both in a substantive and genuinely um, a humanly rewarding way. He was also, uh, in his defense, you know, he was a philosopher and he was a philosopher drawn to 
a kind of abstraction, even as a kind of methodology that he thought would generate the best principles in the end. And it is very hard when your intellectual life, I think, is shaped by um, abstraction and the tendency to take a tradition like the social contract tradition and move it up to a a level of abstraction uh, never seen before. He wasn't someone who found it easy to then make his way back into the messiness of everyday world. And he often thought that that was the job of people who studied the theory and found it useful for them to see, and even of citizens who might adopt it, say, in, in their own political communities. He thought it was the job of other scholars, maybe economists and um, sociologists and psycho- you know, social psychologists, to figure out the best way to adapt and apply and realize the theory in practice. So I offer that not as an excuse, but as an explanation of the fact that he may not have been as deeply engaged with ordinary social problems as some thinkers are. So let's now discuss the book itself. What is the book saying and how does he make his argument? It's an account of distributive justice for a contemporary liberal democracy that takes the following idea as the core of such a theory, the idea of justice as fairness, an idea that he thought allowed him to say that what you would want if you were um, trying to decide the principles that would determine the distribution of benefits and burdens from social cooperation and would do so essentially for your whole life, you would want the principles that shape that conception, he thought, to be the product of a situation that was fair, fair between people understood as free and equal human beings, as free and equal citizens. In A Theory of Justice, Rawls wanted to show how individual liberty and equality could be harmonized. He did this through a thought experiment. He asks us to imagine ourselves in a conscious state before the time of our own birth. Rawls calls this the original position. We don't yet know what family or circumstances we'll be born into. It is impossible for us to see where our lives will begin. We are behind, as he calls it, a veil of ignorance. He then asks us to consider the question, if we knew nothing about where we'd end up, what sort of society would it feel safe to enter? So Rawls creates this thing called the veil of ignorance that at the first stage of choice um, basically limits any kind of information that an individual agent could have about his or her own actual state. It's an elaborate thought experiment that's meant to model or mimic Um, or create an imagination, a situation in which we could think that the right kinds of principles were being chosen. And he believed that was the way to ensure fairness. The original position basically says, when you're thinking about what your society should look like, imagine that you could be the worst off person. You could be the one, no matter how privileged you are in the life you bring to reading this book, you could be the one. And then your responsibility is to say, fairness and morality demand of me that I take that quote-unquote rational self-interested view and I ask how might it produce a moral world that would allow anybody, even if they're in that least well-off position, to have some kind of the flourishing 
or thriving life. I think he thought of this being a way of saying who would not think when they contemplate the other possibilities fully, who would not think that this is a better alternative than just allowing for people who are not well-situated to fully suffer and to have absolutely no hope uh, of a flourishing existence. So to put that idea, to give it some, some life and some substance, he thought you needed for a moment to abstract away from everyday life, even everyday political life, and think about what would be a fair situation in which such a choice of principles to shape, you know, the distribution of the benefits and burdens of cooperation. From this thought experiment, Rawls thought people would arrive at two basic principles. The first would be a principle concerning equal basic liberties and their protection as a way of recognizing how fundamental um, individual liberty is to all the things we value, including freedom of conscience, freedom of thought, freedom of expression. This was key to Rawls. He wanted to make sure individual liberties were protected. And then he thought that the second principle should concern um, the distribution, the shape really of uh, material goods and how they as benefits in particular of social cooperation are distributed. This was how Rawls thought equality and liberty could fit together. He thought that a just society could have material inequality in things like income and wealth and even ownership of property and so forth. But he thought that they could only be justified as fair, going back to the idea of justice as fairness, if they were, if any inequalities could be shown to be to the benefit of the least well-off in your society. He leaves it open, ultimately, whether this would be an ordinary property-owning society that we're all familiar with, or could there be a socialist version? He actually, even to the end of his days, said that he thought you could adapt it for either kind of society. But he genuinely believes there will be markets, there will be competition of some kind, but if some people lose out in that competition, either because of where they start in life or because of the kind of um, capacities, talents, and traits they're born with, don't we think that it would be fair to create a society in which no one would lose out entirely? So the idea that you, um, you choose a system that ends up benefiting the least well-off. Among other people. That's, that's the important part. Among other people. So I guess what came to my mind was, well, you know, what he wants is basically innovation where you're incentivizing um, interesting creative people to develop cheaper ways of doing things, um, new technologies, new healthcare that eventually will trickle down and and help everybody live better, even if they get it last. There are a couple of things I will say. So you're absolutely right that he did not have in mind a system that would um, in some sort of, you know, higher, some way from on high purport to distribute every good in society equally. He actually thought that would in the end not benefit anybody because over time there would be disincentives for people who might increase the total social pie to take risks and engage in activities that do create um, innovation and, and, as I said, increase that total social pie. 
But the other thing for him that's important is that one of the values that makes life in any society, in political society, worthwhile, that recognizes the kind of beings that we are, is, is the value of liberty. And I, I started out quite deliberately talking about the importance of freedom of conscience, of freedom of thought, of freedom you know, of, of religion, freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, that some of the deepest meaning-giving commitments that any human being has that constitute goods that we all care about once the veil is lifted, um, they are the goods that we can realize only uh, by virtue of having liberty to exercise choice um, and to believe things that matter to us for whatever reason they might matter, as long as our action on those beliefs, you know, doesn't in some way limit others' li- others' liberty or uh, make it impossible for others to pursue activities and opportunities that might affect their material well-being. Now, I think to me what is kind of striking and very memorable and revolutionary about about this thought experiment is in particular the way the veil of, of ignorance removes our own identities. You know, we live within these heads and these bodies and these colors um, and you can't help, for the most part, to seek one's own group's well-being. So what is he saying about the veil of ignorance as regarding justice for all identities? How, how does that ensure <laughs> that it doesn't matter what body or group you're born into? That is one of the hardest questions, actually, to uh, to address about the theory. There are worries that this abstractly conceived um, choosing party, so fully stripped of commitments, maybe doesn't have the basis upon which to make any choices at all. Um, but Rawls is is adamant that there is a perspective on the world. This is partly um, what many moral thinkers would say as well, from which you're being asked to be disinterested. There may be some domains of choice where of course you ought to be thinking about your group and about us, not always us versus them, but us and them. But aren't there, Rawls is asking, aren't there domains of concern in which what you want is to distance yourself, to abstract yourself from the interestedness that might lead you to discount the values that somebody else cares about. This is very critical in religious uh, belief. Even uh, Rawls always reminded us, one of the people he valued most, despite the surface level commitment to utilitarianism that John Stuart Mill has, Mill was a much more complex thinker than that, one of the great defenses of individual liberty is in the um, essay on liberty from 1859 by Mill. And Mill actually says at one point, there's just no parity, moral parity, moral equality between your feeling at being offended by what somebody else believes and their feeling in the moral importance of their being to hold, being able to hold on to that belief. This, I would argue, is one of the things we've lost sight of a lot in contemporary life, that there's an intolerance of 
difference, I mean, in this very deep way that shapes people that cannot be fought or remedied, I believe Rawls would say as well, unless we are willing in some domains of choice around things like religious belief or traditions, cultural traditions, and so forth, as long as people aren't acting on them in a way that harms others. So Rawls does talk about tolerating um, intolerance, particularly dangerous, violent intolerance. He talks about that. But we have a duty to tolerate people, even when they are just profoundly different from us, that he would argue, as one example, he would argue it's not a duty that you can understand the demands of unless you shape those demands from a disinterested point of view. Rawls recognized how big a role chance plays in a person's life. He didn't think that if you were born into good circumstances, you deserve it any more than someone who was born to poor circumstances. And that's what his Veil of Ignorance experiment was all about. Figuring out how to organize a society so that you had an equal chance, no matter your circumstance. Rawls is drawing on an idea in Kant called the kingdom of ends. Um, The idea that by our individual choices, where we're not actually thinking directly about creating a world, by a certain set of things we do in some choice situations, we could in principle create a world in which everybody has the capacity to lead the life of a flourishing, rational, choosing, you know, free agent. There are so many things that a person could not choose about where they start out in life. Um, You can choose a lot about how you move from the place that you started out in. But Rawls's intuition is that because you don't choose that, you don't choose the family, this is another very critical thing for him, that there might be ways in which society needs to be attentive to the influence of family um, it, the, can we find ways with our policies, social policies, where you're born, even what um, traits and special talents you have? You know, somebody might be very good at um, quantitative things, formal studies, and so they become a great computer scientist. Are they better people for that? Do they deserve a better life, you know, in the, in the Silicon Valley for that? Rawls's argument is no. You don't take their goods from them for all sorts of reasons because that would disrespect their liberty. But you can't let them think that certain fundamental shaping of institutions should somehow mirror the thought that they deserve to be where they are because they're just better people than the rest of us or, or others who didn't succeed in the same way. You know, it raises perhaps the core value and curse of contemporary life, which is the belief in meritocracy, which is, you know, this almost impossible thing to figure out because you want to reward people for the things they do. And yet we all know you're born to two professors. Well, of course you've got all these advantages. So how do we, how do we balance that? And, you know, as I thought about, okay, so I, I'm, I'm there behind the veil of ignorance and I get to pick laws. I get to I get to help make the society that I'm going to come down to. You know, why would I not vote for communism? I mean, because it would make sure that I get as much as anybody. And because human beings care so much about relative status, relative material well-being, 
you know, I don't know how he thinks that humans are going to be like enlightened enough to, to care about these ideas of dignity and, you know, kind of, you know, being able to live a certain life. Now, I mean, yes, you would want, you would self-interestedly say, okay, I, I want to be able to kind of choose in life. I don't want people controlling me. But when, but when it, you know, you also, you don't, you, you would pick, you, I think it would be in your self-interest to enforce equality across every domain because the risk of feeling lesser than is so strong. You've raised a number of really critical questions. The last point about envy, which Rawls actually talks in great length about in the third section of A Theory of Justice. He thinks that he can produce a system from the two principles I described earlier that minimizes the role of envy. But here's the challenge for the theory that says we're going to guarantee equal shares in perpetuity. And that's that to um, keep that guarantee in place would require a continual intervention, if you will, in the system that you've set in motion. And interventions that might fail to appreciate why certain values, I'll mention liberty again especially, and choice and agency, these are all linked together, uh, why those values have such pride of place in this system. Um, the Rawls talks about a conception of how his theory would work out over time. He calls it the system of pure procedural justice. He says, what you want is a system where you design the principles fairly and right from the beginning so that you don't need to keep interfering and you can count on the procedure as it unfolds over time to produce a just world, whatever that may look like. You can't predict that now. The second thing I would say is he argues that the danger of assuming you would allow a system that even opened the door to the possibility of these constant interventions is that it would be easier with each intervention to bring back in the tailoring to your own advantage problem. So he tells you explicitly in a theory of justice that um, you choose knowing that you will be subject to what he calls the strains of commitment. The idea that there will be times when it this pure procedure that you're leaving alone because that's what the best protection of the core values demands, he thinks, you will be tested. You may be tested even when you're looking at others' um, shares, but he believes that the shaping of economic institutions will be such as that it will be clear that the the system is meant to make sure that even with inequalities, you're the best off that you could be in any possible arrangement. Although Rawls believed in equal opportunity, he didn't think that meant doing away with individual pursuits and struggle. I can imagine a Rawlsian argument for a universal basic income, possibly, although he doesn't, doesn't really discuss it. But you would never want some guarantee of goods, resources, money, wealth, etc., to obviate the need and to ignore the importance of 
the self-respect that comes from work and from making a contribution to your well-being. Rawls was aware that in this society, there would be times when it wasn't functioning as it should, that it wouldn't be perfect. The closest we've come in practice is democracy. He doesn't think you're choosing a perfect society. He thinks you're choosing the least bad or the best that you can, given the kind of beings you are, given how history unfolds when we can't predict it, given the, you know, the uncertainty of the natural environment, etc. He thinks it is the best we can do, given the kind of beings we are, given what we are likely to want. This imperfection was reflected in a powerful way in Rawls's own time. One set of concerns that he was uh, thinking a lot about were the concerns being articulated by, I'll say, and acted on by um, the civil rights movement and people worried about racial inequality in particular. There actually is evidence of his taking notes on, you know, public events, real events, trying to make sure that he understood what the underlying principles were. And particularly in the case of the civil rights movement, this ended up leading him to a very, um, I think, unmatched, totally unmatched uh, appreciation of the value of civil disobedience. I'll say of dissent and disobedience generally. He ends up being uh, particularly concerned with when such disobedience and dissent, and even when it involves breaking the law, when it can be justified, and how it might actually be a kind of corrective for a democratic system that may be in some ways, even unintentionally, but sometimes intentionally, that may be departing from its fundamental values. How do you bring it back to celebrating the the deepest values of political morality that we that we care about? I I will add to this that Rawls has lately been the object of some criticism from some contemporary African-American political philosophers that maybe he didn't, even though he starts thinking about social justice partly as a consequence of the civil rights movement, that perhaps he didn't understand fully enough the depth of racial injustice. Um, and that's an, it's a powerful objection. I have lately myself been thinking about this. I think it's a, an objection that ultimately misfires. In fact, I think it's based on one of those rather narrow readings of a, of a view that Rawls actually cautioned us all against. But I can see why it might look as though he didn't care, but actually did care deeply. Why is his book revered the way it is? What influence has it had? When he won the National Humanities Medal at some point in the late 90s, I forget the date, then President Clinton said, you are receiving this award, among other things, because you renewed our faith in democracy. That's verbatim what Clinton said. I think that's why the book remains very powerful to people. It claims on occasion in early on in the preface to both editions of the book to be giving a kind of um, rationally reformed or revised account of what we already think democracy should look like, only making it better. When we start to lose our faith in democracy, perhaps especially those fundamental values of political morality. And I've said equality and liberty, but I, you know, be more precise, equality before the law, 
substantive equality of opportunity. Um, and of course, equal liberty. And as I said, then Rawls added the fair value of political liberties. He provided, I think, an endlessly rich picture of what we might do to renew and revise democracy when it sort of went off the rails. I do think it does renew faith in democracy. Um, you know, whatever the real world shows us is or isn't likely to happen, that when we're on the brink, um, it shows us what we might need to renew and reinvigorate to get back to the place where we um, maybe are approaching may not be a utopia, but something that could have elements of a realistic utopia, not some far-off ideal that, you know, is platonic heaven somewhere. I think Clinton got it right that it renews our faith in democracy, and that's not a bad thing. Democracy may not be the best of all uh, systems, but it's, you know, it's the least bad. <laughs> it's the best we've got, I think. Writ Large is produced by Jack Pombriant, Liza French, and me, Zachary Davis. Script editing is by Galen Beebe. We get help from Farron Du. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. You can find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.